essentially every world religion has places or spaces that it venerates as incredibly sacred. Islam treats the city of Mecca this way, where millions of Muslims pilgrimage in order to circle the Kaaba. In Hinduism, the Ganges River is considered sacred. Hundreds of Hindu festivals are held on the banks, banks of the Ganges each year. And a dip into the holy river is said to purify one's sins, heal of physical ailments, and grant one good fortune. In Shintoism, Japan's native religion, the very land of Japan itself is considered sacred. Judaism also treats certain locations and spaces as sacred. It also has certain holy sites. For example, Jerusalem is considered a holy city chosen by God. And the temple, that is when a temple existed, it was, of course, a holy place. But beyond just places, Judaism also venerated something else as holy. Time itself. Namely, the Sabbath. In fact, few things are so revered and handled with sacredness and followed with more strictness in Judaism, whether today or in Jesus' day, than observance of the Sabbath, which makes Jesus' claim here in this passage so bold. In fact, it's absolutely audacious if it's untrue. God is the one who established the Sabbath. No one has authority over it, in other words, except for him. So to claim authority over the Sabbath is essentially to claim authority to define religion itself. Today in our passage, we see just that, though, that Jesus claims authority over the Sabbath. He demonstrates his lordship over the Sabbath. We begin by noting the setting of our passage and the conflict that emerges in our passage. Read with me again verses 23 and 24. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they, that is your disciples, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, what were the Pharisees objecting to here? Well, it's not that the disciples were picking grain from someone else's field. That may strike us as odd. We might think, well, isn't that kind of like stealing? But actually, this was allowed by the law. In Deuteronomy 23, 25, uh, we see that the law said that you could pluck grain from another person's field if you were traveling through. And so it reads, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand. The ears of grain, that is. But you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So as long as you don't harvest it, you're good, right? Okay, here though, Jesus' disciples are plucking grain on the Sabbath. And that is what the Pharisees take exception to. Jesus' disciples are allegedly violating Sabbath law. 
Now, what was the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath was a special day of rest that God had appointed for his people Israel. It occurred on the seventh day of the week, patterned after God's own rest on the seventh day following his work of creation. We see this in Exodus 20, verse 11. The Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments given to Israel at Mount Sinai. Israel was commanded to keep the Sabbath, to rest on that day and thereby set it apart, to keep it holy. God gave the Sabbath as a sign of his covenant with Israel. As God often gives signs of his covenants, just like baptism and the Lord's Supper are these signs of the promises of his covenant with us. So God gave Israel the Sabbath as a sign of his covenant, a living picture of the rest of the Sabbath, of the rest that he had promised to give them in the covenant, rest in the land that he was about to give them. And so it was a picture of his promises. It was meant to remind them of those promises. And God gave it to Israel, among other things, as a gift so that Israel might rest from her labor, remembering her constant dependency on God and remembering and reflecting her deliverance from slavery. The Sabbath was meant to reflect the deliverance that God had achieved. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 13 and 15, which repeats the Ten Commandments. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath, which was an institutionalized rest, reminded the people and, and secured for the people that sense of rest that God had achieved in his deliverance and was promising to them, ultimately. So how seriously was the Sabbath taken at that time? Well, we see in Exodus after giving all of his instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. You may recall in Exodus, you have chapters 25, I believe it is, and it is detailed, chapter after chapter, detailing what the tabernacle was to look like. After all of that stuff on the tabernacle, which we know is super significant, God nonetheless says this. He says this in Exodus 31, 13. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Above all things, Keep my Sabbaths. The Sabbath was the longest of all of the Ten Commandments. More is said of the Sabbath than any of the other commandments in terms of the explanation given. Scripture mentions neglect of the Sabbath as one of the reasons for Israel's eventual exile, giving the land its long overdue Sabbaths. This was predicted in Leviticus, and it seems to be assumed in Jeremiah's use of the 70 years as uh, 2 Chronicles 36, 21 makes clear. Breaking the Sabbath was a capital offense, requiring the death penalty. Exodus 31, 13 to 15, which I just read before, as it continues, it says this, For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, 
that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall, you, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Now, our indifference and our lack of familiarity with the Sabbath and Sabbath observance puts us at a disadvantage in understanding the weightiness with which the Jews held the Sabbath at this time, in this context. But for a well-known, well-respected teacher like Jesus to seemingly take the Sabbath observance lightly, it would have been viewed as scandalous. It would have been viewed as even striking at the very heart of their religious practice, at least as how they conceived it. In fact, it's in response to how Jesus treats the Sabbath that the religious leaders first make their plots to kill him. If you look at the next section, uh, which Dan will preach for us next week, at verse, in verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, it's here when Jesus, again, in their eyes, violates the Sabbath, that the Pharisees went out, verse 6, and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That's how seriously they took his uh, perceived Sabbath-breaking. How exactly did the Jews at this time apply the Sabbath? Given their scrupulosity and wanting to follow the law to the T, and given the fact that the law itself did not exactly go into detail about how the Sabbath law was to be applied in every circumstance, the Jews developed laws for almost every situation imaginable, giving rules for exactly what one couldn't, could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. The Mishnah, for example, written oral tradition, oral law, it lists, for example, 39 different acts that it says are prohibited on the Sabbath. These things include uh, things like plowing or hunting or butchering, things that we would probably expect, things that we would think, yeah, that constitutes work, but also things like kneading dough, baking, kindling a fire or even putting out a fire, washing wool, sewing, tying or loosening knots, making two loops. You could make one loop, but if you made two loops, that was work. Um, weaving or separating two threads. Again, two is too much. One is okay. Sewing more than one stitch or tearing something apart in order to make more than one stitch. Writing more than one letter or erasing more than one letter so that you can write two or so that you could write two letters. That would be prohibited. Other lists uh, in different Jewish documents, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and such, prohibit additional things like walking more than 1,999 paces, which is about half a mile. Carrying children, according to some, was prohibited, on the Sabbath, that is. Retrieving an animal that fell into a pit. Helping an animal if it's giving birth. The general rule, and there's many other things, the general rule, though, was not to do anything on the Sabbath unless it would involve putting life in danger. But even then, there were debates and there were certain stipulations and qualifications that people would apply. So, for instance, 
It was forbidden to set a dislocated hand or foot on the Sabbath, or uh, specifically mentioned that it was prohibited to set a child's broken bone on the Sabbath, because that's not life-threatening. If someone had pain in their throat, uh, some of the laws allowed you to drop medicine into their throat, into their mouth, since it was considered unclear whether their life would be in danger by their sore throat. Um, if a building fell down, for instance, you were allowed to remove just enough of the rubble to make sure that there were no victims that perhaps survived. If you found anyone who was alive, you could rescue them, but if you discovered them and they had actually died, you would have to leave their corpse until after the Sabbath. And now we may sit here, we may laugh and scoff at this degree of scrupulosity, but they would probably equally scoff at many of us and how, how uh, the lack of seriousness with which we take following God's law. Needless to say, though, with all of these rules, they no longer experience the Sabbath as a gift of God's rest, but as a painstaking obligation to which they were enslaved to follow. So were Jesus' disciples actually violating the Sabbath here? God's law does explicitly outlaw harvesting as one of those things that was prohibited on Sabbath. So Exodus 34, 21 says, Six days shall you work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. So harvesting and plowing were prohibited. And because Jesus' disciples were picking grain and presumably eating it, as well as all the walking they were doing, presumably, according to the Pharisees, this constituted harvesting. To pluck the grain, they saw that as harvesting, it's plowing, and thus it is Sabbath-breaking. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't actually dispute this point. He doesn't really go the route of arguing whether that's actually true. He assumes it for the sake of his argument that he is now about to make. And what is Jesus' argument? How does Jesus respond to the Pharisees' accusation? First, he, he appeals to the precedent or the example of David. Read with me verses 25 and 26. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, that is the tabernacle, house of God there, and he ate the bread of the presence, or the showbread, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Have you not read of this account, presuming that it is a, uh, a legitimate example here to follow? Jesus appeals to the precedent of David, who, when fleeing Saul, he ate the showbread, or the bread of presence, and likewise gave it to his men to eat. Jesus is alluding to and referencing uh, 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. Now, the bread of presence were 12 loaves of bread that were kept in the tabernacle, in the holy place of the tabernacle, as part of the symbolism of the tabernacle. You'll remember the tabernacle had loads of symbolism to reflect uh, God's relationship and his presence with his people. These 12 loaves of bread, though, were replaced every week on the Sabbath. 
but they were then to be strictly eaten by the priests. When they were replaced, the priests were to eat it, but just the priests. It was not common bread to be given to just anyone. And so technically, it was unlawful, as Jesus says, for David and his men to eat this bread. But as this example of David shows, the law here was suspended in the case of a greater principle, because of a greater principle, that is, preserving David's life and the life of his men. The value of human life, in other words, supersedes ritual observance. And so Jesus draws a similar conclusion here in the case of observing the Sabbath. Look at verse 27. And he said to them, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God created the Sabbath for humanity's sake, not vice versa. God instituted the Sabbath to serve and to bless humanity, not for humanity to observe the Sabbath for its own sake. The New Living Translation translates this verse helpfully this way, a little bit, giving more of a little bit of a paraphrase to it, but it says, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Humans weren't created so they could observe Sabbath as if the Sabbath was the initial thing. It's not that God created the Sabbath, in other words, and then was like, well, I guess now we need to make some creatures for the sake of observing this Sabbath thing I've just created. No, he made humanity as the pinnacle of his creation, and then he rested from his work sanctifying the seventh day. It's not that God made the Sabbath and then rescued Israel out of Egypt in order to follow it. No, he rescued Israel out of Egypt and then he gave them the Sabbath as a gift of rest and as a way to secure and remind them of the sort of rest that he had redeemed them into. Therefore, Jesus says, how one approaches the Sabbath ought to reflect the reason for which he gave it as something that was meant to serve humanity. Unfortunately, though, many of the Jews became obsessed with Sabbath observance for its own sake, rather than the reason for which it was actually given. And so their practice of it, with its focus on all these various strict regulations, had actually subverted and distorted what the Sabbath was meant to be in the first place. Instead of being a blessing, as God intended it, Sabbath observance was made into a burden. Instead of being a delight, it became mere duty. What was originally a gift, they turned into a taskmaster. Master. They, they, they came to approach the law as an end in itself, and they became its very slaves. If my kids and I were, uh, and my family that is, were to get uh, year-long passes to the zoo because we, went, we went once and we really enjoyed it. And so we say, you know what? This has been really fun to go to the Milwaukee Zoo. Let's get that year-long pass. And we'll make the most of this. We'll go, we'll go frequently and really make the most of that year-long pass because we so enjoy it. But then as time goes on, 
we start to kind of, uh, we start to sort of end up treating it as a chore. Maybe we actually don't want to go to the zoo one day, but we say, well, we paid for that ticket. We're going to make the most of it. And we, we, we drag ourselves out there. Maybe it's even raining one day and we say, well, you know what? We're going in the rain anyways because we paid for that ticket. We're going to make the most out of it. And it ends up actually being something miserable. We all hate it. The kids are crying. Abel's losing his marbles, you know. He's missing nap time. What have we done? We've taken something that was actually meant to serve us, that we were choosing to do because it was, it was something that we enjoyed, and now we've actually just twisted it and we've become enslaved to it. We've become enslaved to the process of it all. We've forgotten why we set out to do this in the first place. And that's essentially how the Jewish people at this time were treating the Sabbath. Instead of being the gift that it was intended to be, they had actually become enslaved to it, forgetting why it was given in the first place. And it's all too easy for us, too, to fall into error, to fall prey to error, when we fail to relate to God's law according to its true intent. I can think of maybe three ways that we can do this. The first is that we can do what the Pharisees did here. We treat the law, God's law, as an end in and of itself. We might call this legalism. Legalism. We treat the law as an end in itself. What might this look like? What, 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 what questions might we ask to say, what, what does it actually look like if we fall prey into this? Well, first, we view the duties of the Christian life as something like a rule book to follow rather than a path of joyful obedience to the Savior. We treat adherence to certain practices like something of a scorecard by which we assess, assess ourselves and compare ourselves to others. We view our spiritual disciplines like regular Bible reading and prayer like a checklist that we simply have to complete rather than habits that aid us in regularly enjoying in and delighting in Jesus. Maybe we feel condemned and riddled with guilt when we fail to meet certain standards that we have set up for ourselves and we slavishly follow formalities or our own prescribed rules in ways that actually neglect or at worst run roughshod over the actual spirit of God's commands. How can we combat this? By reminding ourselves of the true intent of God's law, that it is given not to enslave, but to serve. God's law is good, and it is given for our good. And so we approach it not as a taskmaster, but as a gift from our loving God. So first, we can fall prey to legalism. Second, we can also fail to see God's law as something that was given for our good when we disdain God's law, viewing it as maybe something problematic. Maybe we view the law as something inherently negative. This we might call antinomianism. That is anti-law. We are anti-God's law. But God is a good king who knows what is best for us and gives us his law for our good, for our human flourishing. Jesus isn't critiquing the law here in this passage. He's critiquing the misuse of the law. Scripture in Psalm 19, for instance, says this of God's law. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So second, we fail to treat the law according to its true intent 
when we don't view it as something that is actually for our good. And thirdly, another way that we can fail to approach God's law according to its true intent is that we can take God's law into our own hands, throwing it aside whenever we decide for ourselves that it's not good for us. This is what we might call relativism. So legalism, antinomianism, and thirdly, relativism. Because I can imagine someone using a passage like this to justify discarding God's law whenever they think it's harmful or unhelpful, as if that's what Jesus is saying here. You could imagine someone saying that, you know, we should refrain from following the Bible's teaching on X, Y, or Z because it's harmful. That's what Jesus is doing here. He finds it to be harmful, so he's saying, let's not do that. But that's simply to make ourselves an authority above God's law, sort of an authority about what is true and good, sort of floating in thin air. It makes us the determiner for what is good and harmful, apart from God's authoritative word. Moreover, that's not even what Jesus is actually doing here. Jesus doesn't toss God's law to the side or discard it as if it's something harmful. Rather than moving away from God's law, he actually plants his feet more firmly in it, pointing to its original intent. But by what authority does Jesus presume to issue these sort of pronouncements on the Sabbath? Who does he think he is to say these things about the Sabbath? And so here we read his final conclusion in verse 28. So, Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus claims to be Lord over the Sabbath, to have authority over the Sabbath. Now, that might hit us, and we might not think that's all that big of a deal, but remember what the Sabbath meant for the Jewish people at this time. Application of Sabbath law was something highly discussed among rabbis and leading Jewish scholars. What constituted proper observance of the Sabbath and what were legitimate exceptions? Whole tracts were written, as we saw, listing out all the various interpretations, all the things that they thought you could and couldn't do. It's into this context that Jesus claims for himself the sole prerogative to give the authoritative interpretation of the Sabbath. He claims for himself the authority to tell us what the Sabbath means. He audaciously says, I am its Lord. If an exception to the law was made in the case of David, as we saw, well, Jesus says, someone greater than David is here. The very son of man from Daniel's vision in chapter 7, the one to whom the ancient of days gives authority, he gives everlasting dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples should serve him forever, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Jesus says, I am that son of man that the Father gives authority to. But beyond even that, by claiming lordship over the Sabbath, Christ puts himself in the role as its lawgiver, a role belonging to God alone. God created and instituted the Sabbath, and thus only God can truly make claim to be Lord over it, which is exactly what Jesus does right here. 
This passage, as you may remember, is the fourth in a series of challenges Jesus and his disciples receive from religious leaders. Each of these uh, accounts showing us something of Jesus' identity. No one can forgive sins but God alone we saw. And yet Jesus demonstrates his authority to do so by making the lame man walk. In the Old Testament, God was the bridegroom who would one day visit his people with salvation. And yet Jesus says that he is that bridegroom on account of whom all fasting ceases and points to. And so here, God created the Sabbath, and yet Jesus says that he is its Lord. Imagine, say I make a rule for my children that they all need to eat their food at dinner time. Maybe as a parent you have that rule for your kids as well. But then let's say that one of my kids gets sick. And it's very obvious that the, the kid is sick. And so I make an exception. You don't need to eat all your food today. It's clear that you're sick and it's not going to go well. It's going to make your stomach even worse. But if one of my other kids responds, no, dad, you know the rule. The rule states you got to finish your food. What would I say? I'd say, hey, I'm the one who made the rule. I know what it means. I'll tell you what it means. It means in this case, so-and-so is not eating all their food because I don't want to have to deal with that later. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's showing up on the scene. And, and it's in this position as Lord over the Sabbath that Jesus tells us what the Sabbath actually is for. And by his authoritative pronouncement of what the Sabbath actually means, he shows us that he is Lord over it. And so we see that Jesus in this passage demonstrates that he is Lord over the Sabbath. And recall how, how significant the Sabbath was for observant Jews during this time. And yet Jesus claims to have authority even over such things as religiously significant as the Sabbath. Imagine if someone today were to do something comparable to that. Imagine if someone today walked into a mosque and claimed to have the authority to tell them what to do, how to worship, how to practice their religion. Or imagine if someone entered into a Buddhist temple and started claiming the authority to correct their practices. Or imagine if someone walked into a synagogue and said they had authority to tell them what the Sabbath means. But this is exactly the sort of thing that Jesus is doing here. Jesus claims authority over the Sabbath. And if he is Lord over something as religiously significant as the Sabbath, then by extension, he is Lord over every feature of religion, no matter how significant. And so we might apply it to ourselves this way. Jesus is Lord over religion. He has authority over our religion. Now, I know that when some of you hear religion, uh, maybe you think of a man-made system of approaching God, something that's sort of inherently bad. And just to be clear, I'm using religion in a much broader sense to include all systems and practices that have to do with how we relate to God, whether man-made or proper. The whole of it, I'm saying Jesus has authority to tell us what's what. Whatever it is, Jesus claims authority over it. Whether that's our religious expressions, Jesus claims authority and has authority to tell us 
what those ought to look like, or whether it's the person here who says, I'm not religious at all. Jesus claims authority over those claims as well, of what your religion ought to look like, even if you think it's non-existent. Jesus lays claim over all of it. He has authority to condemn it and authority to correct it. In other words, he determines what true religion involves. He defines and tells us the nature of true religion. But how is this good news? This is the gospel of Mark, right? The good news about Jesus. You know, we might think of someone possessing absolute authority as something quite scary, something to be feared. That's not good news for someone to have absolute authority over us. As Lord Acton said, power tends to corrupt, and so absolute power corrupts absolutely. Isn't it intimidating to not be in charge, to have someone else be an authority over us? We're very skeptical of authority in our age today. But notice what it looks like for Christ to actually wield that authority. What did we see in this passage? He does it for our good. He, he reinstitutes Sabbath as it was properly intended, as a gift for us. He doesn't enslave. He frees. He liberates. In Matthew, this same passage shows up, parallel account in Matthew and Luke. In Matthew, in the same context, Matthew eleven twenty eight and 30, right before this section in Matthew, Jesus says this, a passage that many of you probably know. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you true Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or afterwards, quoting from Isaiah, it describes Jesus this way. Matthew describes Jesus this way. As a bru- it says that Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. His gentleness is that he will not even break a bruised reed. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. And ultimately we see that the way that Jesus wields his authority, we see it in the Gospel of Mark itself. Jesus, as he's teaching his disciples on the way to Jerusalem in Mark 10, They approach him wanting to have authority in his kingdom. And he says, not so among you. You know how the Gentiles are. When they have authority, they wield it over others for their own advantage. They suppress other people. But so it won't be among you. Those who are uh, leaders will ultimately have to be servants. The call to lead is a call to serve. And let let me tell you why that is. Because even the Son of Man, the same term here, even the Son of Man, when he came, He came not to to be served, but he came coming to serve, namely by giving his life as a ransom for many. When the authoritative king arrives on the scene, he arrives in an unexpected manner. He does not arrive arrive for his own sake, for his own pomp and circumstance, but he arrives actually dying for the sinful subjects of his kingdom. He dies as a ransom, that is, he dies as a payment to free us from our enslavement, not to enslave us, but to liberate us from enslavement to sin. And he dies for the sake of all those who trust in him, looking to him for that salvation. For someone to claim to have authority over religion, or for someone to even 
to, to, to issue an authoritative pronouncement at all concerning religion, like to the non-religious, our culture would find this absolutely audacious, would it not? We, we like to say that religion kind of belongs to the category of subjective truth. It's true for you, just whatever resonates with you, but it's so presumptuous of you to actually tell someone else what someone else ought to believe religiously. We see that as presumptuous or even suspect. It's maybe an attempt to try to oppress them. We find the idea of someone making truth claims in this area offensive. Who does that? Who do you think you are? But this is exactly what Jesus does. He claims supreme authority over religion. And Jesus' authority implies a call to repent then. When Jesus claims to be the authority, it implies a call for us to recognize that authority, to submit to his authority, to repent and turn from our own self-determination, from our own desire to be our own authority, to recognize his. 2 Thessalonians describes those who will experience God's judgment as those who, notice this, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We see elsewhere in scripture, sometimes it uses the language of the obedience of faith, the obedience that is faith, obeying the gospel, trusting in Christ. In other words, the gospel is good news. It's a proclamation of what Jesus has done, but it's also a proclamation of Christ's kingship achieved that summons all to bow to his authority. To obey the gospel is to actually believe it, to actually recognize it as truth, to repent, to recognize Jesus' authority, and to trust in him for salvation. The gospel calls for us to obey its message by believing. As Psalm 2 says, anticipating the future Messiah, the future anointed one. God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have set up my king, my anointed one. And then it concludes this in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Let me tell you a little bit, let me give you a little bit of a hint here, kings. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh. Serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. The idea is like, like kissing a ring. Pay homage to the son. Pay homage to the king, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Be warned. Submit to his rule. Submit to his authority. Yet blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so our call today is to turn and to take refuge in Christ, to trust in him. If you are here today and you have not yet taken refuge in Christ, if you have not yet recognized and submitted to his authority, do so even today. And as those who do recognize King Jesus and seek to worship him, if you are here today and you are a believer, if you're a member of this church, for instance, the call is to keep submitting to Jesus' authority, to live lives that reflect a submission, a recognition of Christ as the one who defines true religion, as the one that we submit to. He calls the shots. And I would encourage you, even as you sit here right now, or as you go home today, maybe on your drive home or at lunch as a family, I would encourage you to take a personal inventory. How do you find yourself responding to this claim from Christ? This claim of Christ's authority here? Does it make you uncomfortable? Are there aspects of it that actually give you relief? 
Are there areas of your life that you've sort of partitioned off, that you keep for yourself, that you don't allow Christ to touch? Do you recognize his authority, his absolute authority, to define what religion looks like for you? Which, by the way, is an, an entire claim over your whole life, not just some small area. Is following Jesus, in, in other words, just simply your side hustle that you do when you have the time? It's not your main career, it's just a side hustle. Or is following Jesus and the authority of Jesus all-defining? Jesus lays total claim over our entire lives, every aspect of our lives, even those that we hold most dear, like the Jews would have held the Sabbath. For us, it's likely not the Sabbath, but it is likely something. And Jesus calls us, anyone who would come after him, what does he say? To take up their cross, as he says in Mark 8. Take up their cross to die to themselves, to, to, to gain life by losing life, by submitting to him. And the amazing thing is that when we do so, his authority is good. We can trust in him. We gain by trusting in him. And Christ's authority, as we come to the Lord's Supper, Christ's authority also means that he has the authority to invite us to the table of salvation which is what the Lord's Supper is. It's a picture of the salvation, the feast of salvation that we have in Christ. Jesus has granted us access to his salvation, and we are mere recipients. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that fact week after week, that we have been granted the invitation by Christ's very authority to be made partakers of his salvation, which is what the bread and the cup depict and show forth to us his body and his blood given over for us in his death to save us. And believer, if he has authorized that we can come, if he has given us that authorized invitation, no one can challenge it and nothing can revoke it. He indeed has the authority to give us and grant us salvation. Because the Lord's Supper is a picture of salvation, though, that means that it is specifically for believers those who have received that salvation by placing their faith in Christ. And so if you're here today and you are not yet a believer in Jesus, we're so incredibly glad that you are with us this morning, but we would just ask that you would refrain from coming forward at this time to receive the elements. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we are to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy way, a way that fits its meaning, lest we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. It doesn't mean that we are uh, sinless, because the Lord's Supper itself assumes that we are sinners. That's the very message of the Lord's Supper. But it does assume that we are living in conformity with the message of the Lord's Supper, which is that we believe the gospel, we've actually repented of our sins, so we're not living with any known unrepentant sin. And so if that's you this morning, if you are living with known um, unrepentant sin, we would ask that you would refrain. But otherwise, we would invite you to come forward today. We'll use the inner aisle grab the elements, and then return to our seats to partake together. As we do so, uh, we'll stand and sing the closing song. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup 
It is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In churches, often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes again. 